What's up, Wildcatters? That's what people do back here, right, John? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, what the funk? We're here. Uh, actually doing a podcast in person at the Digital Wildcatters Worldwide Headquarters <laughs> Let's go. off of Britmore Road. I'm excited. I did one podcast here before where I was a guest on Oil & Gas Startups and had always wanted to get in here and film a podcast with Tim. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Our podcast mostly existed during COVID. And then uh, once they had the office and, and studio set up, Tim had cancer and, and sadly passed away. So it was nice to see his picture sitting out there. They blew up a picture of us from Empower to uh, see my guy. So definitely with a heavy heart thinking about Tim today, but also getting to know some new friends in here as well. So for my consistent listeners, three people that are going to introduce themselves. Um, we'll start with my guest co-host today, John Calfian. Calfian? Yeah. 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 Uh, and then we've got Tyler and Rodney. So give a kind of a quick introduction and then we'll just do this uh, conversation style. Yeah, appreciate it. Appreciate you let me fill in and guest host for you here. So John Calfian uh, worked for DW. Um, prior to that, I was frack engineer for half my career and then got into kind of sales, marketing, BD and data side of things. And so done everything from frack jobs or working frack jobs, selling frack jobs, um, all the way to gauges and uh, reservoir testing and stuff like that. And now I'm here at uh, DW. So turn it over to you guys. Yeah. Uh, Tyler Cherry, co-founder with uh, Rodney over at BitOut. And um, really have a 15-year track record in the oil field services space. So um, let Rodney kind of go from there. Yeah, so I'm Rodney Giles. I'm co-founder of BitOut uh, with Tyler here. And uh, so I'm really calling myself a serial entrepreneur. I built and sold a few companies, mostly in the cloud technology space. And I've uh, done some investments in the oil and gas space for a while as well. So that's it. If you haven't checked out the Digital Wildcatters uh, headquarters, you got to come out here. It's pretty nice. Yeah. Uh, studio pickleball court. Um, it's uh, pretty impressive. <laughs> modified pickleball court because the ceiling <laughs> makes it very interesting playing pickleball when it's only whatever it is, eight, ten feet. Is that just a compressed form of tennis? It's I. It's more like ping pong than it is tennis in all honesty. <laughs> but, yes, it's like adult-sized ping pongs or tennis. But it's a ton of fun. I feel like it's – it, whatever it's the fastest growing sport yeah, in america it but is. it's i f i think it is that way because it's you it's a good enough workout but it's not so like intense because we we always play doubles but like yeah. trying to play singles with that is just like playing singles tennis it's very <laughs> intensive but you know having four people playing doubles it's really fun get your heart going but you're not like just exhausted and feel like oh this person is so much better than me it's just very easy to pick up it's a ton of fun yeah, it, it, it's fun. Um, it was one of the sports I think that we picked up during COVID because there's some outdoor pickleball mm -hmm. courts near us and the kids could play, even though they ended up like crying a lot because I couldn't always hit it over the net. But that's what you get with um, young daughters. Anyways, um, <laughs> you guys office right next door over here. Yeah, right? we've been, been here out about headquarters. two and a half years and uh, I've had a known call on some of the guys over here at Digital Wildcatters for a while. And uh, but yeah, great location here in Houston at the Cannon. And um yeah, actually, when we landed here, um, Rodney lives on the north side of town. So kind of a backstory, uh, Rodney and I grew up together. Yeah. And um, Where? we, Tomball, Tomball proper. So north of, uh, north of Houston. Went through high school together and uh, kind of went our own paths. Uh, Rodney, if you can speak more to that, but uh, built and 
developed and sold some software companies, hardware companies, and um, I got sucked up in the oil field uh, pretty shortly after university. And um, so Rodney and I reconnected probably about three years ago, and I was living in San Antonio covering South Texas uh, in the Eagleford. And um, it made sense for us to kind of land here at the Cannon. It's about halfway in between the two of us and kind of central to Houston. Most of our customers were in Houston anyways. So, uh, yeah, it made, uh, made, made good sense. Where'd you go to school? Ontario. That's what I thought. Don't, yeah. don't, don't hold against me. <laughs> Y'all ready for some Aggie jokes? <laughs> I like the Aggies, man. You know, Mike Evans, Robert Williams, one of my favorite players. I don't know if you're like a big Aggie sports fan or anything like that, but. I kind of fell off the cliff this year. Yeah. Wow, this was a year to fall off the cliff. No. How about you? We know you guys grew up together, right? Elementary school. Same year in high school? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, same Same year. year. Yeah, went to, I think we went to intermediate school and high school together. And uh, the, um, yeah, I grew up in the North Houston area, Spring, Tomball, Woodlands area, still live up there now. Um, When I was in high school, I was very interested in computers and uh, the internet and started a web hosting company, uh, really a cloud company before it was called cloud. (laughs) Um, Senior year in high school, um, when I graduated, I had about a dozen employees working for me already. So decided to um, kind of skip college and uh, continue to grow that business over the next uh, 10 or so years. Had about 150 employees, had offices in Singapore and Los Angeles and New York and uh, sold that business off. Uh, about 10 years after I started it and uh, went out and bought a bunch of oil and gas royalties, minerals all over 10 states, you know, thousands of wells, um, operated a few at the time and uh, don't operate anything anymore. Um, realized I'm a lot better at technology than I am um, the uh, oil and gas business. <laughs> to me, it was a, I wasn't geologically sophisticated enough sure. to make, uh, you know, very expensive decisions. Um, so I would follow people into drilling wells and participating in them based upon how much other people were investing of their own money. So I would find these promoter guys that were drilling wells and they weren't putting any money up. I don't want anything to do with it. (laughs) And then I would find guys in West Texas who they would let me in on a part of the well and they were putting up 50% of their own capital Mm. of their personal capital, not other investors' monies. And so I would be successful on some of those wells, but, um, you know, pricing turned down and, uh, uh, just decided it was a lot better to get back in the cloud space that I was really good at. And uh, so I took a company there and grew it and expanded into multiple markets in New Jersey and San Francisco, Atlanta, Dallas, Houston, and uh, ultimately exited out of that a couple of years ago. <clears throat> uh, during all of those ventures, we were always building very sophisticated software, but the businesses were always valued as like a typical infrastructure company, very capital right. intensive business. So our buyers were never looking at us from a you know, a SaaS product or anything like that. So I was really searching for an ideal um, to build a SaaS business. And just so happened that Tyler reached out to me um, kind of with this, with an ideal. And uh, so, um, nice. I mean, he's, he, uh, he gets the credit on that. And um, the, uh, or oh, you were I the guess brains the rest behind is it. kind of history. So it was, uh, you know, I think uh, three and a half years or so ago is kind of when we uh, really started putting some ideals together and yeah. uh, um, the rest is history. So, yeah. You know, so, so bit out full disclosure, working with funk futures, they're a client of ours. I'm really bullish on it for a few different reasons. One, I like you guys. I think you have the right mindset. I have no doubt that the product will be successful Two, the competition or perceived competition that I see in the space is all very big companies that come with a really large price tag and probably because of the other systems that they have around it may not care as much. 
about the procurement platform, whereas you guys have gone all in with procurement. And Tyler, I want you to talk about this a little bit, but what was very obvious to me when I first got into oil and gas 15 years ago is there are so many deals that happen and are decided behind the scenes in the field in somewhat nefarious ways, right? So bringing (laughs) transparency into how a vendor is chosen just fundamentally makes a lot of sense to me. And when I saw a bit out, I'm like, all right, these guys know what's going down. How many service companies do you have as listeners to this podcast? (laughs) I mean, there's probably a few hundred. (laughs) Yeah. You know, when we launched the product, um, ultimately we were looking to launch the most comprehensive, easy to use platform out there. Um, I was accustomed to probably the likes of, uh, of what you guys were using, such as Reba and Oracle, mm-hmm. really, really complicated systems, really financial tools. They were not sourcing procurement, straight up supply chain uh, systems. So they were rolled out as, as an integration with a lot of these big, comp- big companies and um, come to find out they actually weren't even fully utilizing the sourcing tool because it was too complicated. So your supply chain folks were still sending out spreadsheets. Um, if they did source through, let's say, I hate to beat up on Ariba, but let's just say a company like Ariba, they would use it, but your support was offshore. So if you need support on the tool, you, you, you're dealing with the time dilemma and then trying to uh, uh, deal with the language barrier. And uh, so we just looked at this. We said, we're going to be Houston-based. We're going to be nearshore, onshore uh, for development and uh, be able to support our clientele uh, here immediately land-based lower 48 and, um, continue to expand from there today. Uh, we actually reach into Canada as well. So, and offshore. Yeah. And offshore yeah, as yeah. well. Yeah. Nice. Well, so yeah, I've done a, a number of RFPs in my life and yeah. they've been through everything from SAP Ariba all the way down to just Here's a spreadsheet template yep. and here's the term, you know, the well, term we've got sheet. a, we've got a customer of ours who just so happens to be probably one of the top four operators here in the U S um, they were telling us a story the other day They did a, I think it was a water disposal job. Um, one of the vendors took a screenshot of Excel, printed the screenshot off, had like a Sharpie marker filled in the pricing. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Yeah. Texted the photo to the uh, procurement rep and was like, here's our bid. And uh, they ended up winning the work. And, uh, <laughs> so, but, uh, the most oil field thing I've heard in a minute. Really is. And I'm it like, was, I'm sure he, was a water I'm sure he filled it out Mexico. while he was driving an 18 wheeler. Right. Um, <laughs> probably holding a Yeti on the other hand too. So. Yeah. No, I mean, that highlights perfectly kind of the, a lot of the issues with it in the space, right? Is that you've got everybody from, you know, account managers in the office to guys in the field that are doing something else on a daily basis that all end up touching or being part of that process. And so it's like, <laughs> even for a sophisticated um, self, uh, that's what I'm calling myself, mm-hmm. a sophisticated technology user going through some of those is, as you mentioned, ridiculously complicated. It's unnecessary. Plus you have to have as a service company, everybody uses something different. So you have sure. to learn all these different tools. Yeah, so it's right. just a huge pain. Uh, and then, so expecting people that aren't sophisticated with technology to try and go into these process, these applications and deal with all that stuff. It's just yeah, it's the same thing with every technology, right? Like if it's too complicated, they just don't use it. Yep. I think for us, the beauties and the simplicity is that service providers can onboard in 60 seconds. Yep. Operators can create a bid in 60 seconds. And, you know, when we do that so that everything flows much faster and much easier and there's no friction along the way. So, yeah, we, we actually, uh, came to this meeting for meeting with a chief accounting officer, director of supply chain, his whole supply chain team. 
So we look at it as kind of a field to finance type level, like easy enough that a field a company man can use to call out light plants, like who do I use for a company man trailer, et cetera. Uh, but comprehensive enough that CFO, chief accounting officer can look at this historical data and look at trends on spend. Um, they see a lot of upside from the cost controls that we built into the platform. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to have both sides of that coin yeah. like what they're using. Right. Cause that's, you know, in a lot of those field services, they get called out from the company man or the field consultant or well, whoever. Right. Yeah. And you don't want to forget about the, about the suppliers too. So <laughs> exactly. you, you have to, you have to have both sides of the equation to mm -hmm. actually make the system work. So, um, we wanted to ensure, and we actually have the feedback from, probably exclusively every service company that we have on the platform that are using it. They're like, this is so simplistic, way easier than filling out a spreadsheet. We've got salesmen on the golf course on Friday afternoon that are responding to requests, responding to Q and a, and, um, they can get on down the road. Well, I think I've got a friend of mine who's uh, kind of in the oilfield sales space and I've seen him respond to some bids before. And really the, it's the buyers were really asking for eight or nine price numbers, but he had to fill out, a hundred cells mm. with all sorts of repetitive information that these companies should not have to do every single time. Yeah. So it's, and he would delay the process till the very end because he's got to do all this work where yeah. they really only needed these eight blanks. So, um, you know, anyways. So I'm curious about the size of the bids. Like, do you guys have oil and gas companies that are bidding out things like office desk chairs and computers <laughs> all the way up to a $10 million you know, fleet or job out in the field? Like what are some of the biggest and smallest bids, if you guys can talk about it, that you've seen? Yeah. So we try to focus on just oil field services and we tell our, <laughs> uh, we tell our, um, our, our buyers that, you know, you're not going to find your, your copy paper vendors in our platform. Um, I, in theory, they could do it that way, but we just don't see that's the best use case scenario. But, um, I mean, we've done very large scale pipeline jobs. Uh, we've done, um, you know, nine figure directional jobs. Um, I mean, we've done very large jobs and I don't know, yeah. small jobs. We have clients that do like repetitive, like MRO bids that even include line items like hard hats. Hard and, hats, uh, it's yeah. just monitors. You know, so so far, yeah. um, as simple as that. So it just varies. Um, and we don't really care um, what size they are. You um, just want bids. We just want bids. So. Yeah. And it's not, I mean. <clears throat> I don't want it to be misunderstood. This is not like an e-commerce or, you know, an Amazon for the oil field. I think there's some, uh, some companies that, that are out there that are trying to replicate that, but, uh, we're doing some, uh, some very basic bids as mentioned with HSE all the way up to complicated frac designs. So, um, it really takes in the whole breadth of that, uh, of that audience. Yeah. And I mean, we have bids that are two line items that go yeah. out every day. We have bids that are 150 line items that okay. go out quite frequently. So, um, you know, it can go as, uh, and that's why it's so hard to do a, you know, we're just going to order the services like Amazon because it's a very complex situation yeah. where, the, where the locations are and how the, you know, every company bids things differently. Um, some folks want to pay per stage. Some folks want to pay per well pad. I mean, yeah. it's just, and we're talking some of the same services sometimes. So um, it's a, it's a complicated process. And, and we do recognize that our buyers, the operators, they're, generally they're very sophisticated people, but you know, I think these suppliers, they're also sophisticated, but they see different formats every time. So they, and that's our goal is to just focus on the simplicity, make it unified and yeah, uh, hopefully take the process, um, a lot easier. So, yeah, that's, a <laughs> on the frack side, that's one of the most <laughs> painful things, right? Is it's like, every Q3 comes around you get all RFPs in and it's like, okay, well 
this major, this is how they want to do it. They want to pay by stage. This one wants to do it by well. This one wants to do, you know, yeah, by stage. Plus you get bonuses on top if you exceed a certain average daily. And that like, I mean, there's so many, <laughs> a lot of the big problems with procurement, in my opinion, around the oil field is that typically the supply chain person that's responsible for bidding out some of these things, not all of them, but may not have a ton of domain expertise on what exactly they are bidding out. Right. And I've heard, I've heard, uh, I was complaining, this was years ago. Somebody told me that, uh, one of my buddies, who's a procurement person, an operator had like an intern or one of the new supply, young supply chain guys come in. They were talking about a workover job and he's like, well, what if we just use less pipe? And it's like, well, you can't, you can't really do that on a worker. <laughs> like, there's a certain depth that you've got to get to, which means you have to have so many sticks of pipe. And so it's just things like that, right? Like I can't tell you how many frack jobs I bid where it's like, okay, they send out the design, but the design doesn't have any of the chemicals, right? Yeah, and so it's yeah. like, okay, well, I can bid this out with no chemicals, but you're going to need chemicals. Right, right. And then and then it gets really convoluted because, of <clears> course, <throat> most of the time they the procurement person is the point of contact which then so all the questions have to go to them and then yep. they have to turn around and send them to the engineer even though you're the one who has the relationship with the engineer and you know all of this stuff but you can't contact them directly and there's it just it's there's so much opportunity for just clearing up the way that people communicate centralizing it and then also making sure that everything is clear as far as what exactly is going to be bid or not because that was a uh there's a lot of service specifically big oil field service companies that uh, have the, you know, bid it low and watch it grow mentality. And when you're on the other side yeah. of that and you're competing against them, it's very frustrating because it's like, That's well, right. I'm giving you a bid that this is the maximum amount I'm going to charge you for But they're this. taking exceptions right. to certain lines right. and exactly. the bundle services. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yes. God, don't even get going with all yeah. the vertically no, I, integrated I, I, bundling and I stuff. Get the, I get the pain points. You know, we, um, we work with several of these companies uh, where they're actually they'll ask, actually ask us for recommendations mm. on best case scenarios with certain categories um, and what we've seen in the market. Um, we, we really look at the software as an extension of their supply chain, an extension of their purchasing yeah. department, um, truly. So there's a human component that comes in as well. We're not, we're not a, you know, we're not a company based out of Boston and we're just not going to support you. Nothing against Boston. Yeah, what's wrong with Boston? Nothing against Boston. <laughs> um, so, you know, we're Houston based. We're right here in the middle of it. And, um, I think it's also noteworthy that the generational uh, move in, in, you know, let's see, can I say, I can't say, okay, so the boomers, we just call them boomers. We can do that. Okay. That are, that are coming up <laughs> on retirement um, that are exiting with a ton of knowledge, but then you have a generation that's moving in that is very apt to using technology. Yep. And um, we have some internal jokes around that, but uh, we, we want to make it app friendly for these folks. Yeah, I think everybody's used to ordering everything on demand now. <laughs> totally. And, uh, whether it be DoorDash, Uber, GrowHub, you know, and uh, so I think uh, from there, that's, uh, uh, I think that's the goal. Let, yeah, let alone Amazon, where my wife spends all the money that comes in. Exactly. Every month. Um, I want to I pivot a little bit. We'll, we'll come back to bid out um, a little bit later, but I want to pivot to talking about entrepreneurship because all of us have been through it in a number of different ways. I'm fairly early in my entrepreneurial journey you know, I'm 43 years old and, and had an idea of what I wanted Funk Futures to be when I was about 37. But it took a little more stubbing my toe, a little more failure until I was about 40, 41 to really launch what Funk Futures has become. And it's been awesome to see it grow, not without its challenges, of course, and, and still um, balancing family, 
and entrepreneurship is not an easy thing. You know, John, I, I'm curious a little bit, like, you know, you're, you're sitting here working for digital wildcatters now, but when you kind of first hit my radar, I think you were the CEO of a, of a small company. So <laughs> yeah. enter, enter into your entrepreneurship journey. I want to talk about that. Ronnie, obviously you've been at this for what, 20 some odd years going back to high school. And then Tyler, you kind of took more of a path like I took where you, you put in the work, right? Yeah. You gained expertise and then made that pivot and transition a little bit later. So I want to kind of get a, a sense of all of our entrepreneurial journeys and, and um, how that's sort of taken us to sitting here today. Yeah. Let me start with you, John. Yeah. So, I mean, going all the way back to high school, one of my neighbors, he was a couple years older than me, had a lawn business and, you know, I think I was 14 or I don't even know how old I was, but, uh, you know, he needed help with it cause it was growing and I needed money because I needed to buy a car when I turned 16. <laughs> and so I started working for him, working with him. And then he went off to college and basically handed me his, the, the route, so to speak that he mm. had built up. And I immediately fell in love with just being able to be in kind of control of what you know, how much, what you're doing and the money that you're making. And so, uh, you know, I, my undergrad is mechanical engineering, but I got my mat my minor in business because I was like, Hey, there's, you know, there's, I wasn't the engineer that was going to be going and designing things because I'm not confident enough in myself and my math that I ever wanted to be a PE to be able to put a stamp on something. I just couldn't personally live with myself if something ever happened like that. Um, and so I knew that, you know, the business side of things with the technical side would be a pretty interesting kind of combo. And so after I got out of the field, I basically have worked for kind of startups or growth mode companies ever since. And so it's, it's just one of those things. I personally love the being able to come in and build something and see the impacts of it on a daily basis and see how, you know, Hey, here's this problem. Let's go fix it. Right. Yeah. And it's just this continuous string, like you're talking about, right? Like everyone, I think a lot of people get discouraged because it's like, oh, well, you know, this happened and I messed this up and I shouldn't have done that. It's like, well, that's part of the process, right? Like everyone has failures and it, you know, it, pretty much every startup I've worked for has not done well. So it's been, <laughs> it's been interesting in that aspect and it can be, you know, uh, it can suck at times, but it's one of those things that 90 plus percent of small businesses fail. Like it's just how it is. And so once you kind of reframe that, it, it continues to, to motivate me and stuff. And so, you know, like you mentioned, yeah, there for, I think maybe two whole months, I was the, the CEO of a, of a company that me, a couple of buddies had started and wanted to bring me on with, but we couldn't, couldn't figure out the, the terms and conditions and stuff of that. And so that was an interesting time in my life. Cause yeah, you get all these, I mean, whether you're the entrepreneur or you're working for a startup, it definitely comes with its highs and lows all the time. You know, it's, you gotta be kind of, uh, have some emotional fortitude, so to speak, to, to be able to be in this. It's definitely not for, for everybody, but. And then, and then you get to that phase where you're like, okay, now we brought on investor funding and that celebration lasts for all of about 30 <laughs> minutes until they're like, all right, we need our money back with some juice. Yes. Mm -hmm. So when are we getting that back? Right. Uh, Tyler, talk to me a little bit about kind of your journey, right? Going from the the sales side of things to straight up running a company with your buddy. Yeah, to your boss, it's like, or to your point earlier, it's like you uh, you go off on your entrepreneurial journey to work for yourself. You take on money, now you've got a boss. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so exactly. Um, you know, I, I broke out in um, I guess about 2011, and um, kind of in industrial generator space, dipped into oil field. 
uh, realized pretty quickly in, you know, didn't know what I didn't know. I graduated AM in 08 and um, figured out really quickly I was pretty decent at sales and um, added an attention to detail so I could also project manage my jobs. Um, had a good sense of, of budget. And um, so uh, at the time, it was a really small company and um, was project manager sales for them. And then uh, went to work for a uh, consulting engineering firm here in Houston and uh, rode that high for about uh, three and a half years uh, up until the end of 14. Yeah. I think we can all remember that. But uh, yeah, I lost uh, probably about two thirds, somewhere around 400 consultants, engineers in the field uh, within a matter of 30 days uh, at the end of 14. So we had to pivot pretty quickly and uh, figure out, well, where's really the, the cross sales here? Uh, so we're really primarily focused on upstream work. And um, I mean, we're based here in Houston. Where else can we work? Well, it's right here in our back door. Totally. It's the petrochemical industry. So we looked to the downstream side and um, I started working with some uh, just basically cold calling and getting in the door with some of these uh, petrochemical chemical companies, DuPont, um, you know, Chevron, Marathon, and uh, realized a, a lot of our engineering consulting uh, services, there was a lot of uh, uh, crossover there in the downstream space. So um, yeah, we we'd actually uh, grew the company <clears throat> with the offset nearly got us back to uh profitability and then we got hit with a federal lawsuit oh so uh so we closed our doors uh late 15 uh so you know um that was my first layoff and a downturn in the oil field and at that point i realized or i, I immediately thought it was like oh man i'm, I'm a failure Totally. Like, yeah. like I got screwed up. I, I didn't execute sales. Like what could I have done differently? <laughs> I'm like, this is my first downturn. And so, um, so you grow some, uh, some callous to the fact that this is just, this is the industry trends and business is going to go on as usual. It's going to take its dips. Your company is going to close potentially. Um, when you're at the forefront and the only sales per person supporting sales in the organization, you do take that, can take that personally. Mm. Um, but you grow professionally through that. So, um, went to work for a couple of drilling contractors, uh, across Houston, then transferred up to Midcon, uh, covered their, uh, their area from Midcon, North Texas, deep East Texas, uh, for drilling contractors and area manager. And, um, really wanted to get back to Texas as quickly as possible. Love Oklahoma city, but, um, just was trying to get back to get back to Texas. So, um, the uh so uh, tetra technologies uh they were looking to tti yeah oh, tti they were looking to grow a uh, a business in south texas for water chemicals and then really augment their existing business with flowback and um so i moved uh moved down to uh down to midland for for some time uh, at the end of 19 and then really cranked up the business as employee number one at the end of 19 and um Man, we had commitments from majors. We had commitments from intermediates, uh, from small small independents. And uh, Eagleford's tough to break into. I mean, I, that was my second stint in Eagleford. And it's probably a lot of your listeners can um, <clears throat> simulate and agree uh, with uh, with that market. But uh, we had some wins coming down the pipe and some commitments. And uh, about 60 days in, <laughs> negative oil hits. Yeah. <laughs> What a time that was. So, man. yeah. Yeah. Get you questioning everything in your life. 
Back, back to the cliff scenario. So uh, we, we really fell off that cliff as, as a business. All your commitments dry up and um, we're strategizing with corporate and like, what are we going to do? Midland was basically the only asset that was uh, still doing pretty well. And uh, as a startup company, we uh, or as a startup business for the company, we really looked at it and we're like, and we're, we're probably just going to can us and say, just go away. We'll start this another time. Um, fortunately, uh, corporate looked at it and they said, you know, this thing's got some legs. We'll see what Tyler can do. So, um, yeah, we grew it from employee number one, uh, zero revenue. Uh, when I exited from the company, I had a million in top line and about 40 employees. And, um, really that kind of transitioned into the start of bid out. So. Yeah. So you're, you're a builder, right? Not just a sales guy. And I think that's, that's really relatable for me. Yeah. Right. If you are a sales guy and good at it, you get put in that box a little bit of, well, why don't you just go out and sell? It's like, yeah, but there's more to it, right? There's strategy, there's onboarding, there's training, and then there's value creation. Sure. And I said this, you know, I, I speak to uh, once a semester, I'm really fortunate to be able to come on and talk with Bentley University students. Um, they have a, uh, a sales program minor, like a sales and marketing minor. And one of my good friends is the professor of sales and he has various different, you know, sales guys come in and try to motivate them and talk about all different sorts of things. And it was really cool for me to talk to these people who have, you know, they're 21 years old, they're 22, they have no experience, but they're eager and they want to win. And I'm like, not to be like a wet blanket here, but if you're going to go into sales, like you're going to lose a lot. And, and how you respond to losing, cause you will lose. I don't care how competitive you are. If you're the captain of the football team and, and you've gotten straight A's your whole life, it's going to kick you hard in the business world and you're going to lose and you're going to be questioning, what did I do wrong? And mm-hmm. I don't even want to get out of bed today. Right. right? And, and have that frustration. Well, it's kind of like baseball. I mean, you're going to lose 70% of the time at bat and that's a, <laughs> that's for a great player. So right. um, you might make yeah. the hall of fame. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> no, that's a, I, I think that's a very valid thing that a lot of people don't for whatever reason talk about is that one sales guys are in general, especially if they've been around for a long time or long enough, have, it basically comes with, Hey, that's your stamp of you've got some fortitude because you didn't quit after two years or one late. I mean, I've been laid off four times, right? Yeah, like it's, somewhere like that three or four times. Yeah. And then you start in, yeah, the first couple of times it happens, you internalize it. You're like, what did I do? It starts coming on you. And it's like, well, in 2014, everything stopped, right? right? Same thing with COVID, right? Oil prices went negative. Like there's only so many things that can be in your control. But I honestly think a lot of sales guys are really set up for that kind of startup growth builder space and they don't even realize it because it's like you've been rejected your entire career in some form or fashion (laughs) right like you've had success but there's always rejection that comes with it at some point and so it's i mean startups are kind of the same thing right like you're grinding and you're grinding and you're putting in all this effort all this effort and you're building those relationships just like you're doing in sales and then finally you get that one win and you're like man that's like to me that, that on us on the sales side, whether it's a startup or just being a sales guy, after you've put in all that work and invested all that time and energy and you finally get that call and they're like, Hey, let's go. That's like that's a gambling yeah. high almost to me, right? Like it's it's the same thing when you hit yeah. blackjack at, at the casino, <laughs> really. Like it's exciting. A little bit less luck, but yeah. Right. Like, no, it's that dopamine hit. Yeah, it is. But I do think as you gain more and more experience, you don't let the losses get you as down and you don't celebrate the wins 
for nearly as long, mm-hmm, right? right? You might internalize it, but I don't learn that much from winning, sadly. Like I, I maybe I set that expectation out there for myself, but unfortunately I learn a lot from losing. That's right. And yeah. and being wrong. Um and, and also like, I don't know, I'm I think I'm a little bit older than you guys, but nonetheless, like my dad had the same job his whole career, so did my mom. Yep. Yeah. And they never lost their job. And then here I was at 26, 27 years old, and I got laid off. I was at a crappy company. The numbers weren't happening. I thought I should have still been able to stay, but somebody had more tenure. So it was like last one in, first one out. Right. And, and I came home and it's like, what a failure. Daddy lost his job. And then you start getting deeper into your career and you're like, the, the whole climate has changed yep. in terms of that. Like the best salespeople still lose their job. Sure. Um, negative oil, like good luck you know, staying put, but you kind of learned this early on, Rodney. I mean, you were, you were 17. You just threw yourself right into your entrepreneurial. Well, like even before that I was like 14 and I was mowing lawns, um, similar to you, John, but like I had the epiphany one day. I remember one time I went to CompUSA, um, and I had some money and, uh, (laughs) RIP. I I was looking at, (laughs) I was looking at, I was looking at buying some video game. I don't remember what it was. And I decided to buy QuickBooks and I was like, I'm going to get this. I'm your typical like 14 year old nerd at this point. And I buy QuickBooks. I'm like, what the heck do I do with this? So I can send invoices and all this stuff. So I was mowing lawns and, uh, and then I kind of came to the point, like, what if I had one of my friends mow lawn and I'll pay them like 15 bucks and I'll charge the uh, maybe 20 bucks at the time. And if I do this enough, I I don't have to do any work and I can uh, make the same, like make about the same amount of money. So um, I started doing that, but yeah, you know, it's been, it, it hasn't always been wins. I've I've had many companies that didn't work out, and uh, you know sometimes we uh, try to. Hopefully, those things don't work out quick. Um, yep. I, I don't like those yeah. to prolong. But um, at the at the end of the day, I think the wins play um, kind of make up for everything else. So the uh, kind of my first startup. I mean, we we had to learn everything. We didn't know how to hire. We didn't know how to find people. We didn't know. I didn't know anything. I grew up, and it's my father had his own business. Um, he started it kind of later in his career, uh, but it turned out to be very successful. So I got to see him do a lot of that. But uh, we would have an employee quit on us, and it's like, crap, we need an employee today. Right. I can't wait four <laughs> months from now. Right. So we would go to our competitors with flyers and put on the windshields at their office buildings. <laughs> right. And uh, we would get people to literally say, hey, let's meet at the Taco Cabana at 1130 tonight after you get off work and we'll interview you, but, but we need you to start tomorrow. Wow. And uh, so we would do things like that that was just very – you know, not traditional. And we think we had a lot more success by doing it that way. And, uh, as opposed to operating very corporately and, uh, you know, it was fun during those years. Um, didn't do a lot of sales. It was all online marketing. And, you know, we would, I would wake up in the morning and we'd have dozens more customers that signed up while we were sleeping and uh, stuff like that. Cool. So it was a, it was a fun ride. And, um, the, uh, um, kind of what we're doing right now is back kind of feels back to those original days where it's it's really fun what we're doing because we're creating our customers are seeing success and um it's fun it's not fun when you're doing like all this work and nobody's benefiting from it and so forth but when we actually start to see like really success compound um it just uh it creates a lot of joy and a lot of fun so yeah you know one thing that i've seen just in the month that we've been working together is the level of sophistication from different operators. Sure. Um, you have some companies who are super advanced and they create purchase orders and they bid out everything. And then you have others who it's spreadsheet or even just a phone call to mm-hmm. reward the work. Do you, what do you see as some of the potential 
challenges that you deal with as you guys grow. Do you think that it's more of a cultural issue within companies? Is it sort of a technology challenge, um, a resistance to standardization? Because I think you guys are poised to do really well with this. I think it's something that companies need. But where do you think you might see some of those stumbling blocks with companies? Organizational maturity, cultural, like what do you You think? know, I think our biggest competitor is the status quo. Yeah. And it's just people are stuck in their ways. But I think a lot of companies are focused on digital initiatives and digital adoptions and trying to drive cost control. So that's why our platform, um, we wanted to set out to build cost controls in place for these buyers and operators. And, um, you know, we wanted there to be a driving factor there. Um, the, um, I would say that's probably our biggest, uh, kind of competitor there. How do you, how do you guys, what is the, the kind of feedback that you guys get? Cause obviously selling in the software space, especially in the oil field, it's a very, well, you know, we've been using insert competitor here for the last decade or whatever and so it's so like there's that barrier of entry like sure coming in where there is an existing platform especially if it's a big one like that at a big operator or something like that there's a very high barrier to entry just because it's embedded in sure. all of their stuff and it's their systems how do you guys kind of overcome that we're kind of well i think you, an example or i think like you've that? got like half the folks who are just going to be slow to adopt anything yep. you know yeah. they've got to take their time and i get it they want to be measured about what they do and i think maybe the other half or maybe maybe a quarter of those um they're they're i think they're coming off of a recent pain point they're coming off of well, we found out this happened in the purchasing process, or we've got such inefficiency on this area um, that you know it's driving quicker decisions and quicker adoption. And uh, I think once they get used to it, it's a, uh, um, I think it's uh, very clear and simple for them. So, yeah, and um, you know, to further that point, we're, so we're working with supply chain professionals here, and we actually work for a couple of majors. Um, but we're working with supply chain professionals, but also we're working with ENPs that maybe have like 30, 40, 50 well DNC projects sure. for the year. And they're out in Midland. They only operate out there. They can drive within an hour to their locations. Um, and you've got four engineers that are making all the purchasing decisions within these companies. So you have to speak their language. Right. And to Rodney's earlier point, I mean, status quo, they're sending out spreadsheets. Yep. They actually have maybe they have a shared drive that they're tracking this information in if they're tracking it. Um, so where's the spin going? All they're thinking about is growth, growth, growth being PE backed. And we respect that, but also consider the cost control component, AFE, LOE, like we can touch all of that very digitally and very easily. For these well, I think companies. we come like we, we have a number of customers who you know, private equity backed companies, new startups, you know, they've got quite a bit of equity behind them. But they come from majors, they come from, they're very smart, sophisticated guys, but they've never actually gone out and purchased directional services right. because it was always handled for them in the past. Right. Yeah. yeah. So they're coming to us, some some reputable names that we don't even know who to who to go out and talk to. Um, you know, we're Googling. Yeah. And uh, so yeah. we've got L all these vendor relationships. Right. We've got um, a big directory of uh, coming close to 2,000 uh, service companies in there now. And uh, where you can go drill down and see who's active in different regions and active in different basins and just really simply invite those guys um, to a bid and so forth. And a lot of those companies, you know, we're more than just a software, like Tyler said, is we try to be an extension of their procurement arm. So they'll call us and say, are we doing this the right way? You know, and uh, are there other guys you recommend for this job? And we're able to kind of bring in these service companies and kind of help uh, um, kind of br bring them to the table. I bet that is a uh, 
very different conversation with your competitors when mm-hmm. other people call them and ask for things like that. It's yeah. not n- much, much more difficult to right. to get a huge and we are, phone even, I, I assume. I think one thing that our buy that our that our customers tell us is that what they love about us more is that we are 100 percent oil and gas focused. Yeah. We have no plans to go right. do you know other um, you know industries or niches or whatever. We're focused on the oil and gas space. Support is a huge deal, and and I do like the fact that you touched on that before, Tyler. So I had an experience recently with Bill.com that was incredibly frustrating, where somebody had paid, but they had paid with a credit card. And my company doesn't accept credit card payments. We only do like 10 transactions a month. Mm-hmm. We're not set up to do that. So I'm trying to figure out how can I get this money paid to me. And I couldn't get anybody on the phone yeah. from bill.com. They literally didn't have an individual who I could speak with. <clears throat> and this is like, I've got to pay people, right? I've got to pay my resources. I have to pay my mortgage. And I can't get this money that somebody sent to us. And then I can't get you to walk me through it and tell me how. <laughs> And it was an incredibly miserable experience and really made me realize just the importance of support. You have an issue like that with Amazon, you get somebody on the phone, they refund your money right away. Yeah. They, they send you another item, whatever it is. And that says a lot about them. But it, it gave me a, a lot of pause around, I really want to find out how well these companies support people. And if you can't get a human being on the phone, I don't care if they have an accent or if they're offshore prefer them to be here the same time zone. But nonetheless, that was a miserable experience. And now I'm going to share that experience with people that I talk to. Like, why would I sign up for that platform? That was terrible. I can't even talk to a support person to get a decent chunk of money to my company's bank account. Right. Yeah. No. And that's, that's exactly what I think our customers tell us is that they love is that Tyler got a call late last night. Hey, we need some vendors for, what was it? A a bill trailer or something? Yeah, it was, it was actually kind of an anomaly for this company. And so we, we built that directory to where, you know, they can filter based on categories for, but this was just a really specialized unit. And uh, so he was needing some help. He's a supply chain professional here in Houston, all of their assets are Eagleford and Midland. But yeah, he contacted us when we were at dinner last night and uh, they're like, Hey, we need some help. He's got my mobile phone. Yeah. Um, and we have some support in office, but you know, we don't try and break those human habits of, because the oil field is very pick up the phone and call big time. Yeah. And if you're again, I hate to beat up on Ariba, but if I'm calling Spain, cause that's where their support is, but, you're not going to get, you're not going to get customer support. And they're going to open a ticket and get back, right. to open a ticket. Right. We'll be yeah. back with you in 24 hours. No, this is oil field. We we're 24 oh, hours. Right. A day. That's a, uh, that's a huge, I mean, the last company I worked for was a tech company. All their devs were over in the Ukraine and you know, it's like, Hey, We've, we're doing this pilot at 5.30 on you know Tuesday yeah. night. Well, guess what? It's midnight in the Ukraine. So if something goes wrong, I literally have no support technically for them at all. And yeah. like it, and it's unfortunately, it seems to be the trend across a lot of specifically software-based companies, like talking to you. I don't, it's insane to me that in the United States, there isn't a law or something that says if you are a financial services specifically, because I've had very similar issues with what you're talking about, you have to have a human being that someone can talk to That's at right. some point in this process, like doing it all digitally, support tickets and stuff like that. When people are trying to pay bills or get a vendor out to look, that's the other thing with the oil field is it's like time is absolutely money. And yeah. so if you can't return, you know, immediately react to that, so they're not going to use you. You sure. know, that's, it's a, it's a huge problem. And you get one shot. Yes. Right. You, <laughs> yeah. you can't mess that up. Um, couple, couple final thoughts before we wrap up here. 
um, one of you guys said something that actually stuck with me. And that is a lot of these PE backed companies are made up of individuals who have had success at larger organizations and built those relationships and seen what it takes from sort of uh, scaling a large company. But then they get put in these roles for these sort of startups effectively. And now they're looking at production and downtime dashboards when previously they were focused on IT security or creating 10 Ks, right? So now you've got people that are thrust into these different roles and candidly for them, they need more of the bid out type tools because they don't have the background in creating a procurement process, right? Reinventing the wheel isn't necessary when you have the technology to do it and create that community around the collaboration of technology. Um, And I've seen that now a few times and it's sort of like people come to me and say, you know, I really appreciate what you're doing, bringing some of these small companies out there because my role has really shifted now that I work for a a small privately backed company and I see the importance, especially of some of these startups, right? And and we want to help shepherd them in their growth to show how a small privately held company operates because it's different than how a Chesapeake works yeah. or, or how a, a Devon works or Pioneer or, who, or whoever it may be. Um, where do people find you guys? Where's BitOut at? Where are you on LinkedIn? All that stuff. You go to BitOut.app or just Google BitOut. Um, and uh, we're on LinkedIn. We're on Twitter. We're on um you know, most of those platforms, but yeah, check us out. Give us a call. Um, send us an email, um, figure out a way to get in touch with us and we'll be more than happy to, uh, really chat with anybody. Yeah. Half truck will travel. I mean, we, um, <clears throat> we just came off of, uh, about a two, three week run between Midcon, Rockies, West Texas, South Texas. So, um, we actually got shut down two days ago, heading to San Antonio for the <laughs> ice. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You you know, it was one of those things Texas. that we no. were leaving. We were leaving here at five forty-five in the morning, and I and I saw that it was snowing in San Antonio, and I said, "Yeah, well, really good thought." I said, "You know, we'll be fine. I'm not worried about us." Yeah. Um, but we've got an appointment with our client. We're going to make it happen. So we were twenty miles from San Antonio, and uh, we got a call, and we did we did email the client at five thirty in the morning, and we were going to see several clients that day, but we got a call that they were shutting the office down. I wasn't mad one bit because, you know, we, we told them we were going to be there and I wanted to be there and, uh, we'll just be back next week. So, yeah. Yeah. We're heading out to, um, back up to Oklahoma next week. Um, it's actually turning out to be one of our most active regions, um, as a company. It's, it's really picking up up there. Yeah. OKC has been really good to me business wise. I think that there's a, a culture of wanting to adopt technology and also an appreciation for you visiting. If you're based in Houston, you're based in Denver, even Calgary, you just expect that people are going to come visit you. But if you're in Tulsa, Oklahoma city, even Pittsburgh, Midland, you want people to come to you. You appreciate it and you want (laughs) to see them multiple times. So I appreciate the fact that you guys are pounding the pavement. I think that's going to pay off in the, in the long run. So yeah, thanks for coming on today, fellas. It's been great getting to know you and, and really hope to see this uh, bitout.app uh, take the industry by storm on the procurement side. Thanks, Jeremy. Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jeremy.